On today's episode of Talent Savvy, we're talking about what job seekers wish employers knew. It's a massive, massively big uh, report by Boston Consultancy Group on everything that job seekers really want and you should be paying attention to in order to attract them. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Talent Savvy, the podcast that inspires you on all things talent from the Netherlands. My name is Bas van der Hatert. And I am Kelly Robinson from the United States of America. And I am Matthias from Berlin, Germany. Welcome. So today we are talking about what job seekers wish employers knew they wanted. Uh, this is a massive research by Boston Consultancy Group. Matthias, you found this research, at least within our uh, little podcasting group. Uh, would you care to tell us what it is all about and, and how big it is? Yeah, no, 100%, uh, Bas. I think um, what job seekers wish employers knew is a BCG report in combination with the network. And it's a massive global report. Why do I say this? Because we have over 90,000 responses from over 160 countries. Yeah. If you really look into the uh, data a little bit more, and we probably share the link for our audience later, it's labor market statistics on education and employment status on age and also geographically very well interesting. So I'm really happy to discuss this today. Yeah, me too. And it's it's just, it gives such a broad insight of everything, which both proactive as well as passive candidates want, and they split it out on what they're looking for. And it starts off with a couple of myth, or actually they have statements which are true or false. Which one stood out most for you? Uh, uh, Kelly, why don't you start with this one? Okay, well, I've got, I mean, first of all, the report is gold. So thank you for sharing it. There's so much valuable information that I really um, encourage everybody that's listening to, to grab a copy of this. And you're going to post it in the show links, right? Of course. So, so grab a copy and read it because you can learn so much. But, you know, let's start off with statement one, 52% of people, so that's over 45,000 people that responded to the survey said they would turn down a job offer if they had a negative experience in the recruitment process. Uh, and we could do a whole show about negative recruitment experiences, right? Because most companies have not invested for the market as it is today. And 66% of those said that a smooth process is the way that an employer would stand out. So... For me, starting at the very beginning is go, go and apply for jobs at your company and figure out if you enjoy that process. And if not, do something about it. Yeah, the fact that a smooth process is actually a way to stand out is actually saying that the bar is pretty freaking low, right? Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. So I think, um, I think, and this is maybe a problem that we have in our profession is Whenever we think about hiring or recruiting talents, everybody thinks about attracting, everybody thinks about sourcing, nobody thinks about the process or the assessment or how to go about it. And I think this is a clear uh, momentum where we say people, also when we combine it with the, the global trend of you know hiring for quality, this is really, really important here. Yeah, How do we make sure that everybody's in line, everybody is in sync, and it's not an endless process as well? How many times, you know, candidates are faced still with like endless um, interviews makes them become disengaged because it's just not ending and they don't feel like the employer knows what they're looking for, right? And I think this is why I'm actually very happy about this result because I do think it proves the point hiring processes and assessment are actually a differentiator and hiring talent. 
Yeah, and I, I remember a, a global head of TA here in the Netherlands uh, for one of our big IT firms. And he once told me, he said, I went to the board and they asked me, how much money do you need? And he says, I don't need money. I need to be able to access our top developers to get into the process. Because in order to hire top talent, they want to have those coding challenges, those paired coding challenges, which they did with the people who actually are in the top level. And when we keep on sending our worst developers there because the top, we want the top ones to perform really well, we're not getting in others because they're like, is this the quality I'm going to work with? Never mind. Yeah, I mean, that was for me, there was some really interesting stuff in this. And, and I'm, hopefully we're going to unpack as much as we can in, in, the, in the time that we've got. But, but following on from that experience part, did you, did you read the segment that said that so many candidates are really not they're not excited, they're not motivated. Part of the process for them isn't having a conversation with a bot. It isn't having uh, a chat with an AI. It's, I want to talk to a person. Now, they'll go through some steps, you know, to, to get the shortlist and, and either, you know, include themselves for the role or, or discount themselves for the role based on certain criteria, but they, they want to actually still talk to people. And I think that's good for our industry, isn't it? Because there's been so much talk about AI and chat GPT and everything else. But clearly, and I think the number was 75%, if I remember, we'll review it in a second, but like 75% of people are saying they don't want to talk to AI. They want to talk to human. They want to be able to ask the questions. They want to know what this company's, you know, what's it really like to work here? It's, it's 57. I just pulled up the sheet. It's 57 people who want to talk to the hiring manager and 56 who want to talk to the recruiter in face-to-face and about 50% want to have an online interview. Um, What surprised me about those data actually was that about 40% actually said, I love an assessment. You know, I love to have an assessment, which was surprisingly to me because everybody's always telling me assessments suck, but apparently they only suck if you don't tell people why they're doing it. And if you're giving them an assessment which they don't understand they have to do, you don't explain to them what's the relevance for the job or the company. But apparently there's actually quite a high uptake on doing assessments. What it did show was people hate video interview, one-way video interviews. Um, They really do not like either bring your own video or doing an AI video interview, those scored really at the bottom end of how would you like to do it? But, but on that, can I ask you a question on that? Do you think, and this is just a, this is just us, you know, us talking about it. Do you think it's just that it's, it's new and people are just not accustomed to it yet? You know, go back six, seven years ago. If you said, what do you think about video calls, Zoom, et cetera, you'd probably got the same feedback, right? Because it was new and people didn't like it. They were used to talking on the phone. Is this just, does it take time to be accepted into the, into the recruitment ecosystem? Or do you think it's generally something that people are just not going to enjoy? They want to talk to a human. What do you think? I would argue that at one point, there needs to be a human element in the process. And um, I think if you automate it um, to, let's say, 90 or 95%, this is it's not going to work. Yeah. And I also do think it depends a little bit on the roles, right? But honestly speaking, it's interesting for our movement and in our battle that everybody wants to automate and everybody wants to make this as efficient as possible. But we probably tend to sometimes forget about it, yeah, that we need to carry the human side of things in this process as well. Because in the end, my experience tells me I'm considering not just the company or the product, but also the manager that I work with or the team that I have around me. Like, you know, um, we cannot completely disconnect this, even if, an, if we are in a remote um, environment. 
And I also do think at, at one point, people tend, if it's just about their skill set, their technical skills, I put it like this, and there's not so much about culture and the way we work and the way we uh, value performance or the way we, we uh, focus on getting together as an organization, I think this is now something that triggers a lot of people. Just look at the layoffs, just look at their experiences. I think in the end of the day, becomes a hotter topic in the hiring process that the culture that the way you uh, handle and work with people needs to be reflected in the process yeah i i think Al, to be honest um it's not going to change a lot um it's not because it's new it's because people see it adds very little value i mean if you're going to be a spokesperson Everybody understands you have to perform on a video. So yes, then it works. If you're going to be in retail sales, people will understand probably that you need to be an outgoing personality. You need to show that you can be a persuasive persona depending on, of course, the retail outlet. But for most jobs, it doesn't add any value. And then if you're going to do an interview, you might as well do it on a chatbot. I mean, if it's going to be about questions... If it's going to be about the assessment, people will probably prefer a genuine assessment, which is much more. So I don't think it's because it's new. I just think it's a very bad replacement of what was already a very bad process called the interview. And now if you're then taking the human out of it, what the hell is the use? So that's my two cents. (laughs) I do want to go back to the, the, the meds. It says, this one was sprung out to me, traditional day jobs are dead, replaced by part-time solution gigs and side projects. And they said it's false because 75% still want a traditional five-day work week. Only 15% wants to be self-employed or to start a business. Most job seekers are looking for employment at a large company. On the one hand, they say 75% is still looking for a full-time job, which is interesting. Yes, then it's false. On the other hand, I know within Europe, the Netherlands has always traditionally been the country with the most self-employed people, which was around 10%. Now, if this is already 15%, that does mean there's an increase of 50%. If this is a global 15%, compared to Germany, Matthias, you can probably, if 15% of all Germans would become self-employed, that's a doubling, tripling of what you usually have. So if we're asking where did all the candidates go, well, yes, it's still a minority, but it's a massively expanding minority at that. So on the one hand, I agree that they say it's false because the majority still wants a full-time job. On the other hand, it is a sector that's growing that we can't ignore. How do you guys feel about this statement? For me, the bit that was interesting about that statement, and I think you're right, it was 75% of respondents said they want a full-time five-day-a-week job. And two parts to that, right? First of all, five days a week, when we've had a lot of conversation about a four-day work week. And the last part of that statement, which I found particularly interesting, was they want to work for a big company. And really, the conversation has been so much about, I want to work for a startup. I want to, you know, a, a, the, work, the work-life balance of a small organization. And it clearly wasn't for this report. Those 90,000 people said they want to work for, for big corporate. That was quite surprising to me because I, I thought it was, would have been the opposite. And to be honest, I'm not that surprised if I look at the numbers of many of my clients. And interestingly enough, we're always talking about how people want to work for the fast-paced startup environments. I was recently at one of our universities. They still get over 100 applicants in most PhD positions. 
And this is a technical university. So this is the tech talent that everybody says they can't find. And they get 100 on the worst paying job because Dutch PhD positions are basically just above minimum wage because officially you're still for 40% a student or something. So they only pay like, it's, it's one of the worst paying jobs and people still want that. And the same goes for, I work for several governments who are all complaining about the dropping number of applicants. And then when I look at the actual number of applicants, I'm like, every Matthias, you would love the number of applicants the local community, the cities I work for and the ministry I work for are getting on their jobs. So it's all very relative, but I'm not that surprised that a lot of people still believe in the big company to, to give them security, especially now with all the layoffs. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think also it has a stability factor. I know this for sure, and I'm aware of this, that in my bubble, in my tech startup bubble, things can easily shift and appear different than to the overall environment that we are in. Yeah. So for example, layoffs, everybody talks about layoffs, but in the end, the unemployment rate did not increase, right? Has no effect if a startup next door just gets, you know, 10 or 15% of the people out. Um, and most of the time they will be in jobs again, right? So I think we need to be careful here, but I think it's a great opportunity to say what people want. Well, they want stability and they want maybe guidance as well, right? The purpose maybe of, hey, I go there, I have this lower, lower working hours also means less salary, right? <laughs> and that's also something that we need to think of um, here. I think it's surprising, but I totally with you, Bas, I think the 15% will grow tremendously. And on the note for Germany, I know that to get self-employed is always some somehow of a hassle as well. It's not so straightforward than in other countries. So there might be even a geographical influence based on how easy it is with taxes, with, you know, administrations, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And I actually know that in France, it's even harder than in Germany. I know somebody who actually set up her self-employed company in Germany and lends herself out to her employers in France, because in France, it's technically impossible. I know in Belgium, it's twice as hard and twice as unusual as in the Netherlands. And I know in the UK, it's also a lot easier to do. So it has to do a lot with, with the legal issue. Now, we do need to talk about a very sensitive subject, gentlemen, money, because that was basically one of the major themes in this research. And it shouldn't be sensitive. It should be. <laughs> should just be part of the process i've been talking about this forever so i'm gonna i'm gonna be quiet because i will bore you to death and i'm sure i've spoken about this before but please share your salaries share them i fully agree of course fully agree in this one and it shows in the research because that's what we're talking about part of the research it says that the number one thing people are looking for in their job descriptions is how much am i going to make the most important reason for people to reject an offer is there's not enough money on the table. And interestingly enough as well, which I found a very important reason to reject an offer is feeling there's no room to negotiate. And especially, and they actually said, not as much negotiate on maybe even the level, but also on how it's divided between the benefits. What I saw from there is, and I think it was a more of a classic solution, is you know, number one, if you're going to advertise a job, put the salary on it so that the person could look at it and go, do I want to put my hat in the ring for this job or not? Now, make the first 
point of call, do I want to include myself or exclude myself from this job based on the salary? Clearly, that's what everybody wants. And that's going to be the start of the decision making tree. And then when they make an offer, have a conversation with somebody. And maybe there's some room to discuss it. And it doesn't necessarily mean negotiation. Maybe we all like to barter a little bit, but maybe it's not this. Maybe it's not negotiation. Maybe it's just a discussion. I think maybe it's become a little too electronic and a little too emotional. Uh, sorry, unemotional and unconnected. What I actually found from the research, because I, I research all the major employers here in the Netherlands, as you guys know, so the, the 500 biggest employers, and about 50% of them actually do have salaries with jobs these days. And uh, there's no mandatory requirement in the Netherlands, unlike the state of New York, and I think California by now, Cal, that has it mandatory in the US. But Yeah, so there's certain states that have done it. Colorado went first, uh, New York, California's coming. But employers are dragging their heels, and, and they're doing things like, well, let's put the total range. So I'm seeing things like, this job pays from $2 to 200000 I mean, that's not really... It's just cheating the system, right? That's that's just playing the game. It's confusing. You know, anywhere in Europe, if you go into a store and you see the price on something, it's what you're going to pay for it, right? But over here, you have to add sales tax in a separate. So when you saw a product, you've got to add sales tax, and that varies depending on where you live. So that was a bit confusing when I first moved here because I'm like, hang on, this TV's for sale for 500 bucks. Then you go to buy it, and you get a bill for 550 on your credit card because they add tax after the event. So maybe it's kind of part of that. We're a bit more used to it, but it's absolutely what people want. And there is a slow movement, but it's, it's not gaining enough traction quick enough for my liking. No, and it's it's so important. And to be let's be very honest. I mean, one of the biggest negative experience you can have is going through, through the entire process and then finding out that they're not even close on what you're expecting to make. Exactly. Why waste their time? It's a complete waste of time on both sides, and it's a very negative experience. And we actually know from experience that a negative experience calls 10 other people on their negative experience. Yep. Can I add to that? Because I think there was a statement after that that was, for me, absolute gold. And it's the statement on passive candidates, because we all get asked this. How do we unlock passive candidates? How do we find passive candidates? How do we get those people don't even know they're looking for a job to consider working for our company. And do you know what the number one statement was? 65% of people said, if you want me to be interested in a job that I don't even know about, it needs to be a higher salary and better benefits. I mean, it's, it's good old red-blooded capitalism 101, right? If you want to hire passive candidates, give them more. Simple as that. Problem solved. I just drop the mic and leave now. I actually found another really interesting thing is what are they looking for in a job description? Because like we said, this report is amazingly full of data. What matters in a good job app? Focus on skills and attitudes rather than on educational and experience was actually in the top five of most important things in the job ad. And I find it so amazing that people are actually thinking about this like just describe what the hell i'm supposed to do instead of the number of years i've actually uh, i was recently working with an ai writing tool who's now based you you give some inputs basically your, your normal hiring manager intake and it writes a really great job ad they, they got jet gd gpt uh, uh, access in there and stuff like that and really writes personalized job ad so to say you know for the company and they also had a experiencing years as one of their requirements and i'm like why aren't you asking experiments and skills you know you should have done x i don't care if you've been a manager for four years i want to know if you manage a team of more than 10 people 
know, there's such a difference. And I love the fact that the candidates are apparently now asking for that. No, I, I think it's it's great. Um, we are not there yet, I think, with the whole skill hiring and assessment. But I would even argue, does it make you a better leader if you have like uh, 10 and or 15 um, direct reports? Or, or, you know, how do you define leadership or leadership skills, right? What do you stand for? I think um, it is really, really important that when we talk about skills and experience, what I tell people is always don't come up with more than five bullet points and really... Um, I even designed my job ads these days now with not just response um, experiences, but just put in your skills in the job ad, right? So I even force hiring managers into the system of coming up with skills uh, to make it very obvious of what we look for. It is really, really important, especially from a diversity perspective. How many times I've heard, I had a call with LinkedIn today. They said women apply if they have 100% of the bullet points covered versus men apply with 70%. I think that's the latest that I heard at least, but yeah, it's a very common statistic, right? And the more bullet points we create, the less inclusive we are. It's interesting. You just said, uh, I have a maximum of five. What I always say is the number of things in your requirement list in bullet points should be the exact number in uh, what you offer in your offering stage. So there should be a balance. So if you can tell me that eight massive things that you are putting in the offer and not the BS stuff like, oh, we have a great environment, but things like salary and, and, and all the benefits. And if you put out eight, then I'll accept eight uh, requirements for this job. But if you can't come up with more than four really special things, then you will limit it at four. Yeah, I really like that. I want to underline, and I love the fact you both use the same words. I want to underline the fact you both said job ad and not job description. Because there is a difference. And the problem is, is that our industry is faced with job descriptions all over the internet that are not, they're HR based, right? They're compliance documents. They're not job ads. And, and people are not making the effort to write job ads. So the fact that you've used that word and encouraging that is great. So uh, I want to take one last thing out of this research. And I want to have your ideas on it. Because as you all know, I love the Corporate Careers website. And this research also shows that it's the number one go-to place for the candidates, at least that's what they all say, uh, about 65% said they would first look to the company website in order to find out all this information. And what I immediately started thinking is, so basically they're saying we'll only start looking, or at least a lot of them, on social media, etc., etc., if we can't find the information we want, like salary. And so basically, you have all the power to control the narrative on how your company is seen with a great job, great careers website, where you have good job descriptions. And let me be the first to say, a good job description does not mean an ATS-built job description. It means you use the API from the ATS and design an actual job advertisement, first point of order having Taleo or success factors or whatever it is you're using, design your job description is a job description, not a job ad, as Cal already said. It needs to have some design in there. But you control the narrative if you do it right. So are we under-investing in corporate careers websites? Gentlemen. 100%. I, uh, I can just underline your point, Bas. Um, I just relaunched my new website, my career page, and uh, we have greenhouses and ATS. And then 
have HubSpot as a content management system on, on top of that. And uh, we literally did it as well. We broke the text that you get out of the API of your ATS into pieces. Yeah. Um, we even have um, now content, the possibility of video content on that side, right? And then um, also the way the text is then designed has, you know, blocks then now in there. And then what does it mean? Why would you join? So, and, and then also made it adjustable, created search bars on uh, career pages. I think this is very, very common. And I always like to use that best practice of uh, Netflix. I, I actually quite like their their website. They have the video functionality also as well there where they go around. So you can do a lot. And in the end of the day, it's um, about understanding what are the most important informations, but also play with emotions. Yeah. In the end of the day, if you take a job, it's not just a rational decision. It's also something, you know, how well is this integrated? And I think also when I would look at a company website, I would always look at how is the career site? Can I find it somewhere? Is it a priority? Is it not? Is it not even there? then this would be really awkward. So I think there are a couple of things that I would look out for in order to understand do they really prioritize careers or talent as much. I think that there's a, a lot of people that are going to listen to this that are senior HR leadership that are now terrified that they've realized that the first thing the candidate's going to do is go look at their career site because most of them are highly embarrassed by it, right? The experience is not smooth, let's be honest. If you go and look at them, often they're an afterthought, right? They've, there's little effort put into them. The content could be outdated. It could be an experience, you know, dated back to the early 2000s and not current. So I think there's a lot of people that have listened to that statement and then, okay, we need to do something about this. Because I think they think that the candidate finds the job on a job board and clicks apply. But actually, they're not doing that. This survey is clear. They see a job. They go and look at the company. They look at the career site. They make a judgment. And then they decide if they want to apply. So there's a lot to be said about investing in that and making that a really first-class experience for the candidate. And, and you know, there's these, you know, there's these awards in the U.S. called the Candy Awards run by Kevin. The reality is, is there's only a small percentage of companies that make this effort, and, and, and clearly they need to do more. So I think you've just terrified a bunch of people, Baz. Yeah, well, and um, then let me terrify uh, especially our U.K. and U.S. listeners even more because I've looked at a lot of U.K. and U.S. corporate careers websites, and if there's content on there, it's very content-focused, but then the entire process... They forgot about that. They forgot about the job ad. They made a job description and everything behind that. And that's another thing you should really be looking out for. And again, you can control the narrative. People love finding stuff on your career's websites. That's what this research shows you. And it's, it's just so much easier. You can actually make it mobile accessible, which... This entire thing research doesn't talk about because it's not just not in there, but we all know how important that is. Yeah, it's just one of those very underinvested uh, items. So, ladies and gentlemen, on that note, I would like to thank you all for listening. Download the report. It's in the show notes. And if you love our podcast, give us a rating, share it with people, and we'll be back next week.